This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think the addition of brachytherapy, I tend to, and I've written a lot about this and had some nice debates with American Brachy Society members. I think that the data to add brachytherapy boost shows a small PSA benefit. And I mean small, call it 10%, maybe as time goes on, it obviously expands for a 20 plus percent increase in severe toxicity, including those couple deaths on the Ascend-RT trial. Quality of life, even for high-risk men, in modern high-risk trials, I often say if you look at, there's a trial called FLAME, which was just external beam with sort of a external beam boost, or this trial called POP-RT from India, which is just external beam. Modern high-risk, there's almost, it's like 1% of guys are dying of prostate cancer in five to eight years. Only like five to 10% even have BCR in five years. Like this is very different than 30 years ago, given the staging and you know stage migration, grade migration. So anything that severely increases toxicity or has the potential to, to me tips the favorability in the opposite direction. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of Backtable Urology on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. This discussion is brought to you by Verisite, provider of the Decipher Prostate Genomic Classifier. Decipher Prostate is a test for patients with localized prostate cancer that can help personalize treatment. Every patient and their prostate cancer is unique, and Decipher Prostate can provide meaningful insight into the aggressiveness of each individual's patient's tumor. Because the Decipher score is derived solely from the genomic characteristics of the tumor, it provides information not available through already known clinical and pathologic factors. Decipher high-risk patients generally benefit from earlier or intensified treatment, while Decipher low-risk patients may be ideal candidates for monitoring or less overall treatment. Decipher Prostate is the most validated gene expression test in localized prostate cancer with level one evidence in national clinical practice guidelines and more than 70 peer-reviewed publications, including more than 65,000 patients. Visit verisite.com decipher to learn more. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrod as your host this week, and I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today, Daniel Spratt, who's professor and chairman at Case Western University Hospitals and Clinics in Cleveland. Daniel, how are you doing today? Doing excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the pleasure is all mine. As I was kind of mentioning, I feel like we've had some really world-class radiation oncologists, Amar Kishan, Neil Desai, talking about favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer, as well as unfavorable intermediate risk prostate cancer. And today we're going to kind of round things out with high-risk prostate cancer. So absolutely a pleasure. And I thought it might just be helpful to to get some basic definitions in there. High risk, very high risk, you know, when patients are coming to you. What, what Who are we talking about here? Yeah, so I would say defining high risk is a little easier as sort of a larger bucket. We're talking the high grade, so Gleason 8 to 10 or grade group 4 or 5, PSA is over 20. Now it's probably more in the MRI realm, but, you know, clinical T3, rarely we see these T4 patients. I think the value of very high risk and the definition used in NCCN is highly debatable. That's from a retrospective study and then got a Hopkins that 
you know, I don't think has a lot of clinical implications and most of the guidelines kind of say you treat them the same. There's been some newer definitions. People call the stampede very high risk, which is PSA is over 40, high grade T3, having two or more of those features, which may have some actual clinical implications. Totally. And we'll definitely kind of jump on into it. The primary pattern five, the T4, things along those lines. But essentially, high PSAs, grade root four and above, radiographic, something that at least got your attention. That's kind of who we're talking about. So starting with patient intake, what are the kind of critical elements here as you're starting to kind of formulate what might be a best option for this patient? And maybe we could start with urinary symptoms, sexual health, things along those lines. Yeah, I, I think probably for almost any man, right, that you're potentially going to give a radical therapy to, you know, we're going to want to know, you know, whether it's the AUA or IPSS, you know, some type of irritative, obstructive type symptom assessment or, you know, an Epic 26, any rectal bowel movement, history challenges, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, things of that nature, erectile function, of, of course. And, and even beyond that, I think it's also what's the priority for the patient. Some guys may have function, but it's just not a big priority, depending on their significant other. And comorbid conditions, right? Obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, heart disease. And there's social factors, of course, to factor in also when talking about feasibility of treatment, where to get it, things like that. Yeah, I think that priority element is actually quite important and I do mean it, but I almost have found that I tell every patient when they describe their sexual frequency patterns, I'll say that's totally normal because I don't want people to feel weird about being sexually inactive or being sexually active at whatever frequency, whether or not they're able to have erections and so on and so forth. GI history, that's probably something that I don't think the urologist focus on maybe quite as much. Ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, colonoscopies, is this all kind of mandatory intake? I would say so. I mean, it's been ingrained in me back in my training at, in New York at Sloan Kettering. I remember Michael Zalewski telling me that, you know, every, we'll call it five years of his career, he's like, oh, maybe we'll try to do some radiation on this guy with Crohn's. And then he's like, I learned my lesson again. And so while there's definitely cases I've done, especially now with the rectal spacers and, you know, the accuracy of radiation, that's something that I would say is if it's active, even if it's a history, there's got to be a reason why we're starting with radiation therapy, because that could be potentially, you know, catastrophic, you know, we're talking fistulas, we're talking a lot of things. And so it's a little more complicated in high risk. If it's ultra high risk and you know you have surgery, you may need right post-op radiation at some point. Well, those are even larger fields. So it's, but it's a conversation with the patient for sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously we're talking about relatively infrequent cases, lower probability events, but they do pop up. And by all means, if there's a patient, I think from our end on the urology side that we know is going to be inclined towards radiation, getting that history and getting a colonoscopy set up, I think is something we can do. And you mentioned cardiac history. Obviously that's going to have an impact on androgen deprivation therapy, maybe which types of, of medications they would be best suited for. Family history, is this something that, that you're really kind of dialing in on? So we do a focused cancer family history. And I, I think that once you're in the high-risk category, people typically start discussing, you know, should you be doing germline testing? I think when there's a family history combined with being high-risk, it, it's really something more to make sure that conversations had 
then, not that it's emergent, of course, it's just to start that conversation. So yeah, the family history of breast, prostate, pancreas, colon, et cetera, but that's part of the standard intake for us. I'm curious, just kind of logistics-wise, when I was at UT Southwestern, anybody with the family history of high risk or introductal, they went to go see cancer genetics. When I moved to San Diego, mostly due to practice patterns, availability of clinical geneticists, we were actually starting to order the germline testing. And it's kind of nice because we've got a couple of trials for, say, high-risk patients that have BRCA mutations that can get a neoadjuvant PARP inhibitor. What do you all do? Is it you that's ordering germline testing or making the referrals or, or typically the urologist, you know, one step ahead? How does that work at your institution? Yeah, so it's different here. You know, I've been at UH Seidman case for about two years. I think that a lot of us end up sending off, you know, through one of the industry tests rather than an in-house assay. So most of the time, probably the most common is I send off, tell patients just to go to color.com and not that I'm endorsing them, but, you know, one of these tests, because it just goes straight to the patient's house, you know, they pay 250 or whatever the going rate is for it. And a lot of patients seem to prefer that because it's like they get the results to them. It's not ordered through the hospital where they get a blood drawn things, but that that's how most of it, I think probably many of us order a different assay. So it's not, and we're working on sort of, you know, a more standardized, you could call it germline risk, you know, or these high risk clinics um, to kind of standardize it. But we've got a couple different that I would say are the most common people are ordering. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I don't have any vested interest. I order in Vitae because we kind of have a workflow, but we also have this study called the Promise Study, which is kind of cool. The patient gets a pamphlet, they create their own portal, they get sent out a saliva swab and their own results, and they can figure out who to share it with. And I kind of like getting away from some of that paternalistic, your physician has to be the kind of quarterback for everything. Fantastic. So we've gotten a good intake on things, newly diagnosed, Talk a little bit about the next, you mentioned germline testing. What are, what's your kind of ideal panel of staging, imaging, mandatory or highly preferred other tests as you're formulating a, a treatment opinion? Yeah. So typically next stage, right, assuming right they're diagnosed, but if they've already had their biopsy and things of that, that nature is uh, MRI. And often here, we'd already have that before the biopsy, but an MRI of the prostate and then Probably the vast majority of our patients, you know, we get PSMA PET CT. Don't really have a preference. You know, there's now even more on the market. But if for whatever reason they can't, or if they came from the outside, if it's a CT, you know, and bone scan, we would still repeat. We'd get a PSMA at that point. We don't get conventional imaging after the PSMA PET scan if that's done. That's sort of the starting point because if there's metastasis, some of the other tests. Like if we're going to order any biomarker tests, I wouldn't order that if the cancer's already spread to lymph nodes or distant meds. Sure. Yeah, that's that's kind of my imaging-wise preferred option. Uh, the MRI kind of covers local staging, public lymph nodes, and the PSMA PET. And then, you know, I kind of half-jokingly say that tumor board is, what do I do with this nonspecific PSMA PET finding in a rib? Have you found that that caused a lot of consternation? Is this something that's coming up or have your radiologists and nuclear medicine team inserted some phraseology to help diffuse anxiety? Yeah. So, you know, I was real lucky. I was out last year in Australia and, you know, they've been doing PSMA pets for uh, much longer than us. And actually we just had Luis Emmett, who's one of the big nuke meds out there, who's led a lot of the studies with the groups. 
she just gave a, a lecture, didactic lecture to our team here, really calling out what she does and, you know, the the importance, you know, the various systems. There's PSMA RADs, there's like an M RADs, or there's a variety of systems out there. But to to really be very clear that, you know, these ribs are almost always, if they don't have, you know, CT correlates and, you know, some other features are false positives. And so, and they have actually great data where they leave these alone like where they actually have just done nothing and they show that patients after, let's say they have a prostatectomy, a PSA goes undetectable. You know, so clearly these are not prostate cancer. So I, I think that's a big issue across the world, actually. But in the U.S., when we got it up and running, when I started here, there was these patients you know, being called and you go from being a localized to a metastatic. And before you know it, someone's throwing them on ADT and abiraterone when it's really a run-of-the-mill intermediate risk patient. So it's, it's, we're trying to make a lot of progress and standardize things, but that was sort of the intent of having her come out. So I'd definitely recommend it. You know, anyone listening, it's worth inviting, even if you got to pay him money to not overcall a lot of these soft calls. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. I literally have an unfavorable intermediate risk prostate cancer that I'm seeing this morning. He's scheduled for, for our multidisciplinary clinic and he had a PSMA pet you know, SUVs are 2.4 in the third and fifth rib. They're nothing. And he's freaking out, understandably. He's a professor here. Okay. So ideally PSMA pet, MRI pelvis. Are you getting other testing? Say there is something suspicious, maybe going back to the chest on a PSMA pet, MRI chest, bone scan. Is there any role for next testing? And do you have a preferred one, Dan? I think it depends location and depends what's seen on the CT component of the PSMA, right? So if you see something like, let's just take your example, in a rib SCV two and a half, which is like nothing. And if on the CT, there's no sclerosis, there's literally nothing there. That's probably going to be a false positive. If there's maybe something, but the resolution, right, of the CT component, you know, we often would get maybe either a more diagnostic CT if it's a soft tissue area, sometimes we'd get an, or if, if it's the spine, sometimes we'd be getting an MRI to follow up. So it's really just, I think some of these systems for PSMA, PET, it, it's kind of like we've incorporated, right, PIRADS, right, is, is I think these systems really should be quantified. You know, obviously have your nuke med docs lead this effort, but pick something because it, right, that's the kind of pretest probability, right? And if it's low, well, you probably want something else to confirm it. If it's high, well, you're good to go, right? So, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And I'm sure that you know, at multiple levels, this is going to be an evolution on on how we synthesize that into our decision-making. Fantastic. So we talked a little bit of imaging, additional tests. Maybe I'll just kind of throw out what I do, get your input on that. So germline testing, that's mostly going to be a standard of care and seeing if patients are eligible for a uh, neoadjuvant PARP clinical trial that we have here. Tumor sequencing, small proportion of patients with somatic BRCA mutations that could also be eligible for the trial. And then we generally get decipher testing as well. Our radiation oncology team here, Tyler Sieber, Brent Rose and company, they're, they're pretty active and we've got some, what I think are exciting trials based on genomic profiling. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So sort of the Gene expression biomarker class, you know, the one that really I don't have data to say it's the most common, but it seems at least in the radiation oncology community, you know, deciphers what is being used because it's now been published in like 11 phase three clinical trials that have, you know, most of them have been completed and then profiled. 
Paul Nguyen, just, you know, we, a large group of us in energy that Paul led, you know, just looked at three high risk trials and just showing just how pretty impressive Decipher's performance to where if you've got a low Decipher score, which is about 30, 40% of high risk patients, if you can believe it, really the benefit of long-term hormones is pretty minimal compared to just short-term hormones. And that morbidity of long-term hormones is pretty significant. But that's why, you know, the trial, one of the NRG trials, it's NRG GU009 is the number of the trial. But that trial is basically looking, can we de-intensify, right? The low decipher score patients, give them a shorter duration. The higher scores, do we need to add like an ARSI on top? And, you know, it's not published and some may have missed this, but at, at ESMO Stampede, that kind of, you know, how that big paper from Gerda Tard, the high risk non-metastatic patients adding abiraterone improved metastasis free survival. Well, they profiled that cohort with Decipher and actually it was only the patients with Deciphers above basically 0.8. So like the ultra high had any benefit. So that's actually the main indication for me if they're not on one of these trials. I get it. Abiraterone for two years is expensive, even generic and toxic. I mean, they had like 20, 30% grade three side effects. So if they've got a lower decipher, it's not ultra high, just stick with standard ADT till we have these other trials reporting out. Yeah. I mean, going back to the NCCN guidelines and very high risk, abiraterone plus ADT is preferred as a management option. And I think it kind of on one hand is appealing as a quote unquote aggressive option, maybe in a young person with high-risk disease. But like you state, it's not a free ride. And if we can do a better job of selecting patients who who could benefit, that of course makes sense. I mean, I think it, you know, generally there's a pretty nice suite of trials in favorable risk looking at trying to understand a little bit more about the biology and whether they could benefit from de-intensification or intensification of their treatment. I'm reluctant to do it in the favorable intermediate risk patients who are already kind of ADT averse because I don't want to necessarily complicate the discussion. But in the unfavorable intermediate risk, you know, as, as you and others have published, you're really going to get a significant proportion of the people that could probably benefit from an intensification versus de-escalation. I have also found that maybe more so in the community that people are already synthesizing deciphered tests on whether or not ADT should or shouldn't be added in the duration. Any comment on that? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I often reflect on Oncotype for breast cancer, which is 20 plus years old. And, you know, essentially it started from, you know, NSABP post hoc trials that they profiled. And it was used on about a million women for 20 years before an actual prospective Taylor X trial was done, which is equivalent to these NRG trials ongoing. And so it's one of these things, where is each, it's like the early versus late adopters, right? At, at what point do we stick? Clearly prostate cancer, I say we are like the most archaic of cancers because we still use Gleason crating as our like most important feature from 60 years ago. So we clearly are not very willing to, to, to change. But I think when you have this much data and putting cost and cost matters, but for Medicare, where it's covered, things like that, I think you can have honest conversations with patients where I'll say, look, ADT may improve your outcome, 
but it's going to be potentially 1%, 2%. So that's a number needed to treat a 50 to 100. Like, are you, is that good for you? I'm going to treat 100 guys like you and one of them benefits. And I say, look, I can tell you if I had one in 100 odds, I'd play the lottery every day. So it's not zero. I mean, it's not impossible, but a lot of guys are like, it's just not worth it for them. Yeah. I mean, as I was preparing for today, I was just kind of reflecting on how we've kind of counseled patients historically. And it's, I mean, ADT really is such a sticking point. I get it. And fairly consistently, the trials have shown that the benefit of ADT and unfavorable intermediate risk and beyond is associated with an improvement in metastasis for free survival, all of that. But what if the patient's like, you know what, doc, I don't care. You know, I'll take option B, second from the cheapest, and, you know, save myself all this potential side effect profile. And, you know, you look at the guidelines for high risk, your duration of ADT is between one and a half to three years. Where does this, that's, that's a pretty wide (laughs) range. How do you, how do you pick? Yeah. So I I think, you know, in the latest edition that's out, you know, it actually, there's, there's a section now called risk stratification. And under that, it actually says if you use more accurate tools and whether that's Decipher, now there's new tools like Artera AI, some of these tests, is you may it may be appropriate to use a less or more intensive treatment, right? Because we're using such a crude system like Gleason scores. So, you know, the 18 to 36 months, right? It's just from an amalgam of trials. Some use 36, some use 28, some use 24, some use 18. I tend to use 18 months. There's flaws in the trial that compared 18 to 36 months that we'll call it the, the nerds of us, you know, can talk about. But at the end of the day, there's no difference in how long these guys lived. They had pretty similar outcomes, obviously far less toxicity. So I do 18 months and you'll see it's not out yet. We presented it, but we were real fortunate. Actually, you mentioned Amr Kishan. Uh, he and I lead this group called MarCap of, I think, of over 20 phase three randomized trial data. And we actually got the, we'll call it the compliance data of ADT. So like a lot of those trials, there's like 50% of them actually got three years. Like they didn't get the intended duration. And so the actual duration received, it looks like maybe the optimal durations, maybe closer to 12, 13 months for the run of the mill, not ultra high risk, just run of the mill, high risk patient. So putting all that aside, I would say 18 months is sort of my go-to, but I'm happy if I can get guys as close to that. Sometimes that's 12 months. Yeah. And I think the same MarCap data is also highlighting the importance of really the kind of adjuvant phase of ADT. And maybe I'll ask you to just kind of comment on when prior to treatment is ideal for you and which, you know, in your kind of ideal world, what are the agents that you use and when do you start? The data you're referencing is, you know, we've looked primarily when giving short-term hormones that neoadjuvant or before radiation really is not oncologic. It doesn't actually add benefit. It doesn't mean it's harmful. It just, it may shrink the prostate or you have other logistical reasons for using it. But really, it seems that the more oncologic phase is the concurrent and especially adjuvant phase. If you're going to give four to six months of short-term I typically started when I simulate a patient or at the first day of treatment, just logistics to minimize visits. I don't give them that two, three months in advance. In high risk, if you're giving them 18 months, we haven't shown that that extra two months in front makes a a difference. So if you don't need to cytoreduce them, I typically don't use neoadjuvant. But again, I have no 
opposition, especially if it's logistics, but it probably matters a lot less in high risk with long duration. My go-to right now, again, costs always matter, but a lot of guys have really resonated with the Relagolix, the oral GnRH antagonist. And one of the main things, you know, of course, there's this, you know, rapid onset, rapid recovery, which is pretty incredible, right? Within like a couple months, they're recovered even with long-term hormones, which is Lupron. It takes like two to three years if you give them two years of ADT. So it's pretty impactful. But actually the biggest benefit to patients is when you tell a guy, you know, you're going to get a three-month or six-month shot, they feel like they have no control, right? It's like, it's in you and it's in you. Like I could be that guy I read online that's going to fall apart or I'm the guy that's fine. But when you have the pills, it's like within a week or two, you kind of know. And I say, look, just see how you are. And most of the guys, I call it the 20-20 rule. 20% of guys, I don't know how, but they have like no side effects. They're just like, yeah, I still have sex. I still feel fine. I'm And 20% are like, I'm freaking miserable, doc. Like my life, I'm moody, I'm grumpy, I'm horrible, gaining weight. And 60%, it's an annoyance, but it's nothing, I'll call it major. You know, you tell me if you can figure that, I can't figure out a priori who's who. So the pills is nice because they take it. And almost all of them will actually, who would have resisted hormones to start it, they all are willing to actually at least go on it. And then if you want to transition for, you know, convenience, maybe they'll get a shot later. That's exactly what I do. And for exactly those reasons, and maybe even more so in the intermediate risk patients where it's a little bit more dubious, but I, yeah, I like that strategy. I think the recovery, I mean, you mentioned the delayed recovery after Lupron, not to mention the fact that about 30% of people will never recur reasonable function. So I'm, I'm on board and I think it makes sense not to mention a possible improvement in kind of a cardiac profile. So I like that. So, so you mentioned cytoreduce a, a couple of times and maybe I'll just kind of ask your, how you synthesize prostate anatomy, symptoms, median lobe, size, how does that kind of factor into your approach here? I don't want to say I was, maybe I just didn't pay attention in my, my training, but I had this idea in my mind that, you know, guys with LUTs or uh, obstructive symptoms that, oh, I can just give them ADT, shrink the prostate down. They're going to, it's going to go away. And I, I can tell you probably 95% of the time, unless it's just these crazy locally advanced, you know, massive cancers, it just doesn't happen. It's just they, yeah, the prostate shrunk, but they still have their LUTs. And so what I do for guys, just an example is I'll put them on ADT, hoping for that, we'll call it 5% if they've got these obstructive symptoms. And then I'm a big user of holups, for example. Like I, I think guys just do fantastic. And this is, of course, assuming they don't want to have surgery. If they want to have surgery, don't do any of that. I really have no concerns, even if the glands get up to, you know, 100, 150 cc's with modern planning techniques and dose constraints. When it starts to become 200, 300 cc's, you can just imagine it just means more rectum, more bladder, more everything. And so you got to really be thinking, why are, am I radiating this if there's, assume, if there's other options out there? I think that there's an evolution, for example... It's probably a minority of people, but there are there's data out there. People do SBRT in high risk disease. Some people will say it's got to be less than sixty grams. Some people less than eighty. Some one hundred. Some one hundred and twenty. Some you know don't even have a limit. For me, if the prostate's over eighty grams, I would just tell them it's less ideal to do SBRT. 
in general, there's got to be a reason why we're doing radiation and not a surgical approach if they've got lots of LUTs. Uh, I mean, it's there really has to be a convincing reason from that patient. Why are you not having your prostate out? Yeah, I appreciate that. So, so some of my thoughts, you know, larger prostates can be asymptomatic. And if they're not symptomatic, I think this historical idea that a larger prostate is a contraindication to radiation is a myth. For higher risk disease, where, as you mentioned, there's typically a little bit of a longer ADT run in six, eight weeks, if they've got substantial LUTs and there's not something meaningful going on in you know, a couple of weeks, I think doing an outlet procedure based on the size of the prostate, you mentioned whole lip, which I think is fantastic. TERP, of course, is kind of a standard gold standard that's widely accessible. Robotic simple prostatectomy, and even some older patients that may not tolerate general anesthesia, I don't think prostate artery embolization for glands bigger than 80 cc's is necessarily a bad option. And then generally after the TERP, I think giving them, you know, six to eight weeks to kind of heal up and settle out makes sense. Does this sound about reasonable to you, Dan? Yeah, you know, my sort of synthesis of the data is, is for like a traditional TERP, I typically give longer for healing. You know, there's are these cases that sort of people have gotten into trouble where they radiate too soon after. There's many reasons I'll say I like going to urology meetings, but I always pay attention to the, you know, like when they talk about hole-ups and then, you know, like how soon after these radiation series. And I've seen some really compelling data where, you know, even just 30 days after, you know, I typically give them, a, you know, maybe 30 to 60 days after a hole-up and, and, and go for it. Some interval, but right, if they're on long-term hormones, right, there's not this urgency. So we're, we're finally getting to radiating the prostate and sometimes in higher risk diseases, the modifiables, in my opinion, are a little bit more restricted. So we've got duration of ADT. You've kind of talked a bit about that. We've got type of ADT, which you've addressed. The addition of abiraterone, and to paraphrase, maybe decipher very, very, very high risks, greater than about 0.8 is what you mentioned. And then a conversation based on primary pattern five, T4 disease, maybe in younger, healthier patients, it's a bit more compelling as well. So those are kind of our systemic concerns. We've talked a little bit about prostate anatomy, size, median lobe symptoms. And then of course, there's the actual type of radiation. You know, even at the beginning of my career, it was pretty easy to give a little synopsis of what's out there, but now it's conventionally fractionated IMRT, hypofractionated, ultra-hypofractionated, combination, protons. Maybe this would be a good time for me to request that you share your spiel, if you will, for a high-risk prostate cancer patient, including efficacy and, and um, complications. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you my take, and I know that there are definitely radiation oncologists that would feel differently, but sort of what I tell guys for high-risk disease is, first of all, I do not feel there's much of a role of conventional fractionation. And, and I just looked at some practice patterns and still probably, I think it's 50% of the U.S. uses conventional fractionation for high risk. And, you know, they say, because you're treating lymph nodes, maybe we need to do that. For me, I, I think we've got great data. There's no role for that. So to me, giving eight to 10 weeks of radiation therapy should be a rare scenario. I think the addition of brachytherapy, I tend to, and I've written a lot about this and had some nice debates with American Brachy Society members. 
I think that the data to add brachytherapy boost shows a small PSA benefit. And I mean, small, call it 10%, maybe as time goes on, it obviously expands for a 20 plus percent increase in severe toxicity, including there's a couple deaths on the Ascend-RT trial. Quality of life, even for high-risk men in modern high-risk trials, I often say, if you look at, there's a trial called Flame, which was just external beam with sort of a external beam boost, or this trial called Pop-RT from India, which is just external beam, modern high-risk there's almost, it's like 1% of guys are dying of prostate cancer in five to eight years. Only like five to 10% even have BCR in five years. Like this is very different than 30 years ago, given the staging and you know stage migration, grade migration. So anything that severely increases toxicity or has the potential to, to me, tips the favorability in the opposite direction. And because I think we've learned this from the surgery versus radi- surgery plus minus adjuvant radiation, right? The whole concept was, well, you can give salvage. There's no difference here. You can give external beam. And for that, maybe 10% of guys you may have cured by giving brachy, you can do it as salvage if you need. It doesn't preclude you from that. But I think that given there's no metastasis-free survival benefit of doing these ultra-high doses, I do not personally recommend it. I probably do more than the average regarding ultra-hypofrac in high risk. And you know, we've run a number of trials. Dan, let me ask you real quick. So just for, for brachy, and we're we talking about low-dose seed implants or high-dose catheters. Yeah, so there's no level one data for HDR. I mean, I, I think HDR is... Probably, you know, I think objectively, although there's lacks good evidence, has less toxicity than LDR. I think many people have pivoted over to HDR. The problem is, is that there's no level one data for HDR compared to just dose escalated external beam. And I think what the field has done is they hear the word brachy and they just think it's all the same. And there's been some big teaching points in that, you know, they said, oh, well, let's just do HDR single fraction. You know, that's LDR is just one insertion. And it was like in low risk disease, 40% of these guys recurred. And so the danger, and I call this out a lot in radiation oncology is just because you call it brachy or just because you call it radiation, you there's no dose escalation trials. We don't know what the optimal dose is. There's some, you know, it's retrospective. And so do I think it is safer? Yes. Do I think it necessarily improves outcomes? I have no clue. No, I, I appreciate that. So maybe if we go with most intensive, which would be combined brachy plus external, sounds like unless you have a hyper-motivated patient that wants to do everything in God's green earth to be as aggressive as possible, recognizing that comes across, comes along with some additional toxicity, that's not going to be your kind of standard recommendation. No, but I'd be doing... Yeah, as I referenced that flame trial, you know, where you do an external beam boost, you know, it showed a near identical PSA or biochemical control benefit as adding an LDR boost with functionally 0% increase in toxicity and doesn't add the cost of adding an LDR implant. So I I know this is not loved by the brachy community, but I, I think doesn't devalue its role. It's just, it may be better as a salvage option or when you can be as monotherapy in earlier stage disease. All right. So combination, maybe not top choice. I'm a little surprised with the conventionally fractionated 
in my mind, that's like you can get this at a quaternary cancer center or you can get it with Joe Schmo and and the sticks and, you know, good old fashioned eight weeks, five days per week, conventionally fractured radiation therapy, Prozar, friendly fire at a high dose to adjacent organs and associated toxicities are low. You can get the lymph nodes. We'll maybe talk about that explicitly. That's a big pro, I guess, accessibility where you don't have to work on a really refined, robust team to get the planning and the imaging absolutely perfect for things like ultra hypofractionated. Maybe just a little bit more on. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree with your assessment when you compare to ultra hypofractionated. But when you talk about four or six weeks of what's called moderate hypofract, I, I mean, so the there's trials, one called Profit and another called CHIP, but, you know, in Profit, you know, there's actually less late toxicity using 20 fractions of radiation. So I, I think that it is something people, you do not need ultra specialized equipment to give 20 to 28 fractions of radiation therapy for prostate cancer instead of 40 to 45 treatments. And so is it wrong to do 40 to 45? No. Is it as convenient for the patient or we'll call it cost effective? No. I tell patients and every, about once a year, I have a guy who literally says, that's what I want. And to me, I view them as they're non-inferior when each done correctly. But I, I do think in similar and other cancer types, why do something that adds patient burden if there's no benefit? Well, and as you'd mentioned, you know, with the flame trial, ostensibly with the boost, there's something about that higher dose per fraction in terms of cell kill that's a value versus just getting the ultimate dose in over a longer time. All right. So I guess, are there symptom or size specific factors that precludes people from receiving less fractions? Generally, we're talking if these glands are, we'll call it around 100 cc's or less, is that I think some of the data that, you know, some of it came from Dr. Pollock and this moderate hypofract trial that I think stuck in people's minds. It's really old data that doesn't seem to be reproduced in other trials that they say, oh, if you've got obstructive symptoms or large glands, don't do hypofractionation. It really doesn't seem to bear out. And so I, that's really not a reason. If a guy has obstructive symptoms, I do SBRT or moderate hypofract. I don't notice, you know, they're going to equally have side effects it's not like if you do conventional, they're going to have, have no worse side effects from it. And many of my guys, I feel that prefer sort of a shorter acute phase than this like eight, nine weeks of just chronically being having this irritation, you know, and they're kind of like, let me, you know, put them on some ibuprofen if you need or Flomax, give them a couple weeks of, you know, SBRT and get through it and you're done. Yeah. I, I really like the analogy that Neil Desai gave, which is do you want me to rip off the bandit or do you want me to pull it off slowly? Maybe that's a memorial thing from Zalewski and company. But uh, I think that's kind of what it boils down to, right? It's like, do you want do you want this in a shorter, condensed format where there may be a little bit more urinary and rectal toxicity? Or do you want it a little bit slower where there's a lot more kind of involvement interfacing with the healthcare system? And maybe the toxicities are a little bit more acceptable. All right. So... I'll say that I don't think there's actually lower toxicity. I think that, you know, the late long-term toxicity is the really the same in the studies. I mean, they're superimposable. So the early phase, the acute, like first 90 days, I think you're spot on. But that goes back to that analogy of like, 
ripping it off versus slowly peeling it off. But I think when you're talking about one year, two years, five years, et cetera, it's, it's the same. All right. So, and then just to make sure that I'm clear, so ultra hyperfract, that's five fractions administered basically every other day for a couple of weeks. Yeah, usually. I mean, there's, there's, you know, like always there's exceptions. People do four, some people do six or seven, but yeah, generally it's five, generally every other day. Some people do it once a week, some do it five days in a row, but generally every other day. Okay. And then, so I'm here in Southern California where protons have also, Loma Linda is a big center. Any, any opinion on protons? Are they useful, equivalent, any different than good old fashioned hypofract? Yeah. So, I, I mean, so you know this and hopefully the audience knows this, right? That there is zero high level evidence that protons is going to significantly increase cure rates, reduce side effects. So, you know, and I think insurance reimbursement reflects an astro statement reflects that lack of data. I think that the efficacy is the same, right? You're giving a, an amount of radiation to the same target. It's going to kill it the same way. So I don't think there's an oncologic benefit. Side effect wise, and I'm ignoring, let's say you're treating pelvic nodes. It's, I'll put it this way. I'll say it's theoretical and it's theoretical for some patients. You know, we have protons here and just had two patients who traveled far. That's the only thing they wanted, did a plan comparison. One patient, the theoretical dose looked a little better. The other one, it actually looked worse. And I just say, this is theoretical. It's not something that and I don't do. Some do five fractions of protons. I personally don't. And so I just say, you know, you're giving up some convenience potentially for it. I don't think it's something that should be pushed. It's an option that has equal efficacy. And if done right, you could say a theoretical, and that's the most I would ever state. I I don't feel strongly at all anyone needs it. I appreciate that. And my understanding as a urologist is exactly said, not necessarily worse, not necessarily better but perhaps a little bit more difficult to administer in a ultra hypofractionated manner. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, there's centers, you know, Mayo Clinic, you know, I've been told they've done some great work with Proton SBRT. And just for those out there, you know, it's actually, you don't even bill for protons. Actually, SBRT billing trumps the protons, so you don't make any more money. So I, I, we haven't done that here, but it's, you know, why sometimes does someone get one phone versus the other phone or a car versus the other car. And I think as long as it's clearly pitched, and for me, it's usually Medicare patients where Medicare pays the same amount. If they really mentally feel they, they, they want that, but I, I usually after the conversation, most are, are not as interested as they were coming in. Yeah. Makes sense. And, um, I will just say as a urologist, the number of people that are specifically asking for seeds or proton is uncommonly high. All right. So maybe now I would just request you to walk us a little bit through the logistics, some of the considerations, fiducials, space sores, when are you using those or using them routinely? You know, so the patients decided on radiation for the high-risk prostate cancer. Walk us through a little bit about, hey, Mr. Smith, this is what the next four to six weeks looks like. So what we would do is, you know, we would get, whether it's an oral or if it's injection for ADT, get that started. And usually we try, if it's going to be an injection, we try to link that up with one of his early visits, just so it's not multiple visits. First step for us is 
for most guys, it's got to be pretty bad disease with true posterior extracapsular extension, not posterior lateral, like in the neurovascular bundle, but like true posterior to not do a rectal spacer. And I partner with our urology group as sort of the way we've streamlined it here. So Yoni Shoag and this guy, Randy Vince, but Yoni will do like five to 10 spacers on Tuesdays and just boom, 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 back to back, just knock them all out. It's just, and he'll put fiducials in at the same time. Then we'll, so if spacer goes in. Let me ask you a quick question, Dan. Yeah, go for it. So, you know, this is something that actually came up in our tumor board yesterday. There was a patient who had 160 cc prostate, clearly extra capsular extension. It was posterior lateral, kind of extending a bit towards the midline. And we we're having a whole discussion and space wars came up. And, and this idea of ECE posteriorly being a contraindication was mentioned. And you know, I was thinking like surgically, when you go wide, you can either get right onto your longitudinal rectal wall fibers, or you can get onto the perirectal fat, or you can get into an interfascial nerve sparing plane. And when you inject your space, or I'd also imagine, I mean, of course, you don't want to get into the rectal wall and have to kind of sort through all of that. But if you stay wide, could that potentially allow you to deliver a more effective dose or have a bit more of a margin to spare the interior wall and still address that disease? Oh, 100%. I mean, for me, like I said, it's probably almost all of my guys with high risk. I don't believe, like there are people who say if it's high risk, you can't do a spacer. If there's ECE anywhere, you can't do a spacer. You know, the plane, as you're saying, sort of behind an unvious fascia, if you're sort of in the right plane, you shouldn't be dissecting through tumor and separating it at all. And that's where I sort of say, it's got to be, you know, those cases that you're like, is there rectal invasion? I'm not sure on the MRI. Those are the cases I don't do it, but the vast majority, I think it's safe to do. And, and again, it's partnering. I personally, I mean, there's radonks who do a great job placing them. I have found both at my last center in here, having a go-to one or two urologists that I can show the, the SIM images and they're just logistically able to knock them out. They get super proficient. They're not, the radonks, some uh, who are fantastic, but they'll like squeeze it in between consults. And so it's not necessarily like, they're ultra in the zone. But yeah, so for high risk, I, I don't have concern about it. Yeah, I personally don't think, you know, fast forward 10 years, we're going to see a bunch of recurrences posterior to where the spacer, which is now gone, used to be. Okay, so spacers uh, or rectal spacers, I guess it's proprietary, that fiducials, that, that happens. SIM, CTs, MRIs, molds. Yeah, yeah. So we'll do, I would say if it's a guy coming locally, about a week later, we do a sim. If a lot of my patients come from another city or state, I do it the next day, just so they spend one night in a hotel. It's a CT. If they've already had an MRI, I actually don't get another MRI. We just sort of register the initial MRI, even though the spacer's there now, just to save them the cost of another MRI. If they've got hip prostheses or something, then I'll get another MRI just for target delineation. And yeah, and then it, you know, planning, you know, obviously we use a variety of auto contour tools and, you know, we're always trying to speed up that, but I would say about a week later, they're ready to rock and roll, start treatment. They get immobilized at the time of SIM and they're ready to start. Okay. So then we're, we're getting on to treatment, usually what, an hour, hour and a half for the kind of A to Z experience. Is that about accurate? It's, you know, here, you know, my spiel and it's, pretty spot on if the guys, you know, usually we have them drink water before they come in. It's uh, it's usually 45 minutes door to door. I mean, the, the beam is on for six minutes, but they've got to get on the table, 
they do some imaging, adjust them, treat them. These guys love a full bladder. They got to go pee afterwards. So yeah, it's about 45 minutes. And that was pretty consistent in my last center. You know, there I used to say 45 minutes car door to car door because in Ann Arbor, we'll say parking was easier. Once you start to be in a city, even though Cleveland's not a massive city, parking adds some time. I imagine San Diego, you throw in some of that. That's the biggest, single biggest complaint from our patients are parking in valet and things along those lines. All right. So generally, let's maybe say an hour A to Z. And lymph nodes, are you routinely rating them along with the uh, with the prostate and the SVs or SVs? Is that also part of your field? Yeah, I always radiate full dose to the SVs, um, I've, especially in this PSMA pet era. I've just, the amount of isolated SV recurrences is just through the roof. But I actually typically do not radiate lymph nodes. I think that you know, similar to the surgical trial data, and I know it's controversial of like the benefit or lack of extended node dissection, like it may be diagnostic, not therapeutic. Well, we're not diagnostic by treating them, like we're not gaining information. And again, you can, if there's a recurrence in that node, you can give a nodal field later. So I tend to, in most things, lead towards the sides of side of quality of life. But if, if it's T3B disease, high grade or really high PSA, or especially if it's node positive. I mean, I, I definitely treat the lymph nodes, but run of the mill, Gleason 8 PSA of eight or nine, I, I wouldn't treat the nodes and just tell them that, you know, we really don't have fantastic data. We have one trial that's 250 patients that there's a, a benefit and multiple negative trials. Yeah, I appreciate that logic. And I think it's, it's totally an evolution in the way we think about things are you know, do we do something up front or let things declare themselves? It's almost like a litmus test before we um, expose patients to that potential toxicity. Two questions, efficacy. Doc, what are the chances of this being curative? And I always tell patients when I'm counseling them for any surgery, I'm going to tell you about the common things. I'm going to tell you about the bad things. Can you just maybe comment on both of those things, please? Yeah, yeah. You know, high-risk disease someone could have a predicted 2% risk of Mets at 10 years, they could have a 40% risk. And it's, I think that's where all these details start needing to be combined. And, you know, I, I use, we have a calculator online and it's starcap.org. It predicts death from prostate cancer, but, you know, there's lots of tools out there because even in high risk, as you know, they're definitely not all, all the same. The MSK nomogram is a great one. And so that's sort of, but, in, you know, run of the mill, We'll take that Gleason 8 PSA of 8 guy with organ-confined disease. You know, most of the, you know, modern data is going to say that they have maybe a 3%, 4% risk of death from prostate cancer at 10 years. It's low. And, you know, METS is probably closer to, you know, we'll call it 10% plus or minus. Re regarding side effects, you, you know. Let, let me ask you one quick, because obviously our prostate cancer patients live and die by PSAs. So while I can try to explain to them that, you know, using, say, a memorial or nomogram, you get surgery, good news is 10, 15 years out, your chance of dying is 1%. More sobering, your likelihood of having a biochemical recurrence at 5 and 10 years is closer to 50, 60%. You're not going to die, but we may have some more work to do. I feel like it's it's challenging on the radiation side with the definitions, trying to synthesize what the PSA is doing early on. Is this a bounce? Is this a marker of some potentially nasty disease? Recently at ASCO, there was a presentation, which I 
appreciate the intention of looking at an early PSA response of less than 0.1 as being a marker. How do you kind of uh, take in PSA and, and alleviate anxiety? So first of all, you know, I know there's an ongoing trial, but generally I believe that the long-term, we'll call it metastasis, death, et cetera, is similar whether you start with surgery or whether you start with radiation. What I tell them is that like in almost any cancer, and you know, as, as a radonc, this is just part of training, right? Glioblastomas of the brain, esophageal cancer, breast cancer, you name it. Almost no cancer is treated with surgery alone. And it's not because surgeons aren't awesome at what they do. It's just cancer often has microscopic spread adjacently or, you know, there's microscopic margins you can't see on imaging. And so if let's take that memorial nomogram in a high-risk patient and let's say um, it says you have an 80% chance of PSA recurrence, I say, well, fine. Well, we know that let's just say adjuvant and we think early salvage is similarly effective. It usually, you know, would cut down that PSA recurrence chance by half. So we'll say you have a 40% chance after surgery. And if you need radiation, you know, you'll have 40% thereafter. If you do radiation and long-term hormones, you know, I tell them that it's probably floating around 40%. Maybe you can call it 45%. And, you know, because we've got a, it's a uncommon that you have an isolated local recurrence. It's not impossible. We see them. But the reason that the long-term outcomes are similar is that if you do surgery and radiation or radiation uh, up front, the chances that if it still comes back that it's metastatic, it's the most common area, right? And you're the same prognosis. So I, I think PSA is informative, but I also try to just let them know that, you know, you don't feel PSA, right? And it's really up to the patient, the provider, what to do with it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I like that some of that way of explaining it, because I do think it's challenging. And I don't know that we're gonna have the time to get into the nuances of when you get really concerned about a atypical PSA response. And, and you are factoring in, you know, those ultra low PSAs in the high risk patients, they always get us on high alert, introductal, cribriform factors. Are you going to pursue a biopsy or image this patient sooner rather than later? It's, it's complicated. And, and I appreciate that. And I think what you've just described is kind of a logical way to diffuse some of the anxiety and say, hey, we've, you know, these are the cards we're dealt. Here's the things that we can do. And there's certain things that are unknown and out of our control. And then, yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Toxicity wise, just kind of the general, here's kind of how you might feel in the next 30 to 60 days and, you know, a couple of years out. Yeah. So I'm going to pause on the hormone therapy, even though that's highly relevant here, um, but just to separate it out. But, you know, with, we'll call it moderate hypofrac or conventional, or if you were doing SBRT, you know, most of it in the, the acute and long-term phase, you know, most of the modern studies, it floats around the one, 2% grade three, meaning like an intervention is, is needed. Not, whereas needing like Flomax, which is a, you know, I feel like it's handed out like water, you know, that, that probably floats in the 10, 15% in the modern, you know, trials where you need a medicine and some, but low grade, like grade one, that's probably like 40, 50 plus percent where they, they know something's different, right? Life goes on. Maybe they wake up another time at night, but something's changed. But in terms of, you know, when you look at quality of life, 
most guys in the studies and my patients by by three to six months after they're sort of this irritative phase right more frequency more urgency maybe some nocturia less so now than when i trained on the gi side and again that's probably partially from the spacers partially just from planning techniques and imaging but that frequency and urgency is just super it, it, I call it, it's an annoyance for patients. And that's why that baseline function matters so much. Long-term, I think a big misnomer that I think, you know, for this audience is people always say, you know, radiation's the gift that keeps on giving, or, you know, there's this late phase. You know, we, we've looked at this. And when you look at, you know, the dozens of trials that have followed guys for 20 years, there's not some peak five, eight, 10, 15 years that you see all this craziness happen. It, it's crazy stuff can happen. Right. But it's it's something that we sometimes forget that people are still humans and other things happen in their life a, as well. And so those are very infrequent events. So like when you look at grade three side effects beyond three years, it's exceptionally rare. Of course, the urologist will say, well, I saw this and I saw this. But you're right. The denominator might be a thousand patients. Right. But I agree. It's just like surgery. Right. We, we talk about anesthetic complications and the low probability, terrible things. And, but it does kind of seem to resonate with the, let me tell you about the common things and the bad things and the bad things being, you know, refractory, recalcitrant, radiation cystitis, extremely low, bad strictures, et cetera. Well, you know, Dan, I've, I've certainly learned a ton over the course of our conversation. Very much appreciate the, um, thoughtful approach to things. I think sometimes it's easy to think that when it comes to a surgery, there's a lot of skill involved. And I personally feel that when it comes to radiation oncology, there's a lot of skill involved to really optimize and tailor that treatment, both based on evidence as well as understanding what's important to patients and, and experience as well. So as, as we kind of wrap up and come upon an hour, any kind of parting thoughts for the listenership? Well, first, thanks so much again for the invitation. I, I think I still think there's a remarkable you know, I'm honored to be in this profession. And I think that, you know, what I've noticed and not that far in, into my career is the collaboration between radiation oncology and urology and of course, medical oncology, it, it has advanced so far from when I, I trained. Maybe that's a reflection of maybe where I trained, but I think it's just so awesome to see that it is palpable. People just want these guys to have good quality of life and do well. And I, I think working together is just, you know, people, if, especially if you're early in your career, I think we all want what's best for the patient. And so it's exciting. I'm excited to see where the field keeps going. I love it. I love it. Well, hey, I echo those sentiments and totally it's a team sport with the patient at the center. Well, thanks again, Dan. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.